Welcome to my graduation. It's commencement. Maybe you want to hum the, hum the uh, Algar's song on the way, you know, as we get started. That's the one, Mel. Yeah. Today I am claiming as a commencement day for my 10 months of school with you, learning so much about you and maybe giving you a little bit of my accumulated experience after 20 years of ministry. It was 20 years ago, a couple of weeks ago, on June the 1st, that I was ordained into ministry by the congregation that I had served as a lay leader for several years before I went to seminary. It was also the week of our daughter's graduation from high school. And it was, uh, that was 20 years ago. She was selected as the commencement speaker for her class. She didn't necessarily have the highest GPA, even though she had several AP courses. But she was widely respected because she was articulate and she was someone who overcame her fears to speak well in public. That's an example I've been trying to emulate throughout my ministry. And I'm pleased that she's able to be with us this morning. I was a bit jealous when she was selected as the commencement speaker because when I graduated from high school 30 years before that, they only let me talk for three minutes because I was the student body president. Uh, I was uh, second or third in the, in the class rankings because uh, I made one B, I think, in my high school <laughs> class of 120. That was all it took to kick me down one level. And um, But today is my commencement address to you. I will take only 12 minutes or less to share a few more thoughts before Nina tells you a good story that will be worth hanging around for. I promise. The beginning or commencement of our weekly worship liturgy is always the ritual lighting of the chalice. It is the one element that almost all Unitarian Universalist congregations today incorporate in some way or another. Some of them use a little electric battery candles. Some of them have oil, oil candles. A lot of them have different ways of doing it. But the tradition of lighting candles in religious ceremonies goes way back to the earliest gatherings of humans because they were setting up altars as a place for sacred fires where they brought sacrifices of food or animals or sometimes even humans to the sky or rain or sun gods and to ask essential blessings for success of their crops and their hunts. Those early humans believed that their gods were embodied or displayed directly in the fire itself. We see that in the stories and scriptures of the early Hebrews, the Persians, and the Greeks of the Middle East, as well as in the earliest Vedic scriptures, which later evolved into Hinduism, as well as in all the nameless natural religions which existed in, in the state of nature. But in one example, the Indian Vedic god Agni was given the Sanskrit name for fire. But over the centuries, his two-faced identity as both a creator and destroyer is only specifically recognized during formal wedding rituals, as when our son and his wife had to circle the fire of Agni seven times to seal their covenants of fidelity to each other for the next seven incarnations. 
But perhaps more significantly, the sacrificial fires were a necessary and practical mechanism for releasing the spiritual essence of whatever sacrificial food, animal, or person who was put into them so that it could be transferred directly through the flames and smoke up to the divine beings who demanded, deserved, and accepted those sacrifices. Whatever material stuff which remained was relatively inconsequential, although I do suspect some of my predecessor priests may have enjoyed leftover barbecue lamb occasionally. This common background, though, of fire and lighting fires in many of the early religions was slow to evolve to a more humane metaphorical ritual. Many historians believe it was one of the major innovations of the Yahweh cult of the Hebrews as it evolved into Judaism and eventually into Christianity that ritual human sacrifices were completely eliminated and called barbaric by those of us who have developed beyond that. One of my seminary teachers emphasized that the near sacrifice and deliverance of Abraham's son was the definitive scriptural marker of that development in the Hebrew Old Testament for the Jews. After that episode, there are no more records of any ritual religious sacrifices of humans, at least in Judaism. We know Christians did their own means of sacrifice later on. But how did those early humans start those altar fires for lambs or goats or bulls or people? Some say that the first fires were probably those accidental ones that were set off by lightning, which in those various cultures easily was attributed to the anger or the gift of God, gods like Zeus, Prometheus, and Yahweh. Those lightning fires apparently were tended literally religiously for generations in tribes of humans until someone learned how to rub sticks together and then how they could use two stones which put off sparks. And then they found the great advance of flint and steel which made fire portable. Finally, just a couple of hundred years ago, further experiments in the chemistry of combustion led to the invention of the match, which was refined in the past hundred years or so into the gas and electric lighters we are so used to in our modern day life. But each of those depends on the microscopic physical chemistry of creating a spark, a tiny point of concentrated energy, which can then start a reaction. But the spark is not enough by itself. There must be four elements present to create any fire. A fire exists only when there is Fuel in an oxygen atmosphere with enough energy to prompt a reaction. This is called the fire tetrahedron. Fire cannot exist without all of those elements being in place. But once ignited, the fire must also be able to sustain a critical temperature of combustion by the release of heat energy in the process of what's called exothermic oxidation, relying on a continuous supply of both oxidizer and fuel. This was, of course, the basis for the book title, Fahrenheit 451. The temperature of combustion of ordinary paper is 451 degrees Fahrenheit in ordinary room air. Now, we don't burn, burn books. We burn candles. Unitarians use lighters or matches to bring that spark to the combustible material that we call candle, which is in a vessel we call a chalice. It burns until it runs out of fuel or it's burned out, blown out. The light of the fire we create is only 
a visible focal point then in our rituals for our meditations and our thinking about what's important. It's a symbol on multiple levels for many of us. Implicitly, whether we think about it or not, it's a symbol of our inheritance of timeless rituals of humanity over countless generations, where the mystery of life and the mystery of death overlap with the undeniable connections between visible matter and invisible energy. The way that we incorporate this little flame in the context of beginning our liturgy each week, each time you gather, each time most Unitarian churches gather, it is also a simple symbol of our connectedness right now with others in our UU faith tradition. It's a reminder that we are here because you chose to be here. This place and these people are yours by your choice. No one has forced any of us to be here. The people who call themselves members voluntarily wrote their own names in the membership book and made promises, implicit or explicit, to each other about what it means to them to be connected to the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Loudoun. We who call ourselves Unitarian Universalists have chosen to inherit a history, a tradition, which is continuously changing and unfolding, but a tradition that we're mostly proud of. We have this legacy, this heritage, which we are charged to preserve and enlarge and improve throughout our lifetimes, throughout our time of connection with each other, so that it can become even healthier because it will respond to us, to ever-changing circumstances in the world, to what we perceive about ourselves. And we, you, collectively are all part of a larger whole, an extended community of diverse individuals who share most elements of a worldview with priorities that are set forth in writing, in our hymnal, in things that we hand out, in the news that we share, a commitment to making this a better place, a better world for ourselves and for those who may follow us. We cannot and do not rely on Zeus or Prometheus or Agni to bring lightning to light the fires we need to stay warm in the winter, either metaphorically or literally. We try to nurture the flame of inspiration that has already been lighted in us. But as we learn, if we've been scouts, we must also be prepared. In case of rain or cold and darkness, we must have a metaphorical supply of safety matches and flashlights that we bring whenever we're out in the adventures we call life. And we may be asked, and we may be, must be ready to share with those whose metaphorical matches aren't quite dry enough anymore or those whose energy, whose flashlight batteries may be weak, whenever we can do that without substantial risk to ourselves. We would do this not just out of generosity or what is called altruism, but because the day will come when our own metaphorical match may have gotten wet, and when we might need the help of our Unitarian Universalist friends and neighbors, whether they're in this congregation or somewhere in the world. When you need to make improvements to this building, when you wanted to hire staff, you have asked for help as a congregation. And often 
through the efforts of Tamar and Sandy and others, you have re received some of that help through the association, through your local district. It's a fact, I am told. Certainly it's a speculation that this window will magically turn into a new door and steps will be installed on the outside of the building very soon, thanks in part to one of those chalice lighter grants that Tamar has so assiduously pursued. Yes, well, we, we don't want to burn down the building before the door is there. Definitely. But it's all about sharing. And I believe it's an obvious truism to think of this congregation's chalice, which has been broken and repaired, as part of a, a focal point for the energy of the light that already exists in you, the light that you are bringing to this community. And it exists only through your efforts, but also because of the light which has been shared by the larger community of Unitarian Universalists, not only today, but in throughout the 200 or so years that Unitarian Universalism has been recognized. And for those dozens and dozens of centuries that Unitarian thought existed in the minds of people who were trying to make life better here and now, not about some purported heaven or to escape some purported hell. And so I would paraphrase what Madeleine Albright said in Leesburg last Monday as she spoke of George C. Marshall's Harvard commencement speech 70 years ago. We must be doers. We do share in bringing meaning to each other's lives. We are sharing the light that we find with others who might otherwise be in darkness. And therefore, I know that you will continue to be in covenant with each other, in a covenant of support, in a covenant of mutual aid and assistance. And now, in response to my own request for timely help, I can invite Nina, my partner in scouting, to bring her version of a story of sharing life. <coughs> I'm going to try to look at you guys. Um, if you have ever heard the phrase, all I really need to know, I learned in kindergarten, then you have heard of the best-selling book by the Unitarian Universalist minister and author, Robert Fulgham. In some circles, he is thought of as a patron saint of UU's, not because he was a perfect human being, but because his stories touched us in the deepest and sometimes darkest corners of our lives, of our hearts. A dozen years ago, Dan and I were lucky to be on the front row of a crowded, packed beyond the fire code limits in a large auditorium at General Assembly when he spoke to us about what inspired him to write another book. Robert told us some stories about growing up in Waco, Texas. And some locals refer to that as Wacko, Texas. <laughs> a lot of his memories were about getting in trouble. I'm looking at Mel, but 
Sorry, Mel. <laughs> it's, no, it's no wonder that his mom was forever yelling at him, saying, For God's sake, what on earth are you doing? I sort of channeled my own mother right there. Um, as an adult, he had a revelation that her exasperated scream was, in fact, a very good, worthwhile theological question. So, what on earth have I done became the basis and the title of one of his then latest books. The story I have condensed for you from this book is about shining light into dark places. Reverend Fulgham introduces the story by telling a story on himself. He admits that in response to the usual invitation, are there any more questions at the end of a lecture? He frequently asks, yeah, what's the meaning of life? He claims that it's an earnest question because he really does want to know. When he asked the question at the end of a two-week seminar by Alexander Papaderos at an Orthodox Greek monastery and institute for peace on the island of Crete, he finally got a serious answer that has stayed with him ever since. The site of the seminar is important, and here's why. It overlooks the airstrip where the Nazis dropped hundreds of heavily armed paratroopers who then invaded these little villages of Crete. The people of the village villages had to defend their homes and families using mostly kitchen knives, pitchforks, and hay skates. After they had to surrender, the German soldiers lined up whole villages and murdered them. This was in retaliation for their resistance to the invasion. In the years following the war, families built many monuments for the people who were murdered in every village surrounded the mon surrounding the monastery. On one hill above the institute, there was a mass grave and memorial with a white cross for the Greeks who had paid the ultimate price. There is only one burial ground for the paratroopers. It's located across the bay on the hill above the airstrip. The graves were strategically placed so that everyone could see both locations and never forget or forgive. According to Fulgham, the only weapon the Greeks had at the end of the Nazi occupation was hate. So how, in God's name, did that very spot become the Orthodox Academy of Greece? As a very young child, Alexander Papaderos was a witness to what happened during and after the war. He knew how his people had been victimized and how their hate had been justified. He also knew that there was more to the story. So after college, he decided to go to Germany for his graduate work, and he discovered that the Germans and the Greeks had much to learn from each other. He made it his personal mission to promote better understanding. With the support of another humanitarian, and I really don't know how to pronounce this, Bishop Irenaeus, the Conference Center for Peace was built. The Conference Center for Peace was built in full view of the monuments to the horror of war. Now, instead of perpetuating hate, 
People from all over the world came to address conflict and learn how to come together. Because of Papaderos, the world has a model of what can happen when hearts and minds come together in peace. This man, Papaderos, who refused to live in hate, answered Fulgham's question, what is the meaning of life, by taking a small mirror out of his wallet and, I'm going to try to make this work. Okay, there it is. And he showed that to the group. As a very young child from a poor family in a remote village, he had found pieces of a mirror from a German soldier's motorcycle. He couldn't put the mirror back together, so he took the largest piece and rounded it off bit by bit by scraping it against a rock. By playing with it, he soon realized that he could reflect light into dark places where the sun by itself could never reach. He could reflect light into dark places that the sun by itself could never reach. He made a game of reflecting light into holes and crevices, dark closets and behind walls. He wanted to get light into inaccessible places. As he grew up, he understood the game as a metaphor for what he wanted his life to be. Here is the answer that he gave to Fulgham. From Polydorus, Papadorus. I am not the light or the source of the light, but light, the light of truth, the light of understanding, and the light of knowledge is there always. And that light will only shine in many dark places if I reflect it. I am only a fragment of a mirror whose whole design and shape I do not know. Nevertheless, with what I have, I can reflect light into the dark places of the world, into the dreamy places in the hearts of men, and change some things in some people. Perhaps others may see and do likewise. That is what I am about. This is the meaning of my life. What is the meaning of your life? What would you want people to remember you for? For telling the truth? For doing the best you can do with what you're faced with, the circumstances of your life? The fact that you've reached out to be of help and aid and guidance to others in need? To share the joy and the burdens of understanding that this is the life that counts, no matter what follows. The message of Unitarian Universalism is the light that we have seen and we can choose to reflect into the world. I ask you to contemplate and decide whether something like that might be part of the meaning of your life and the life that you make together in this community. We can keep Papadero's story alive by reflecting the light from the beacon of hope that we have found ourselves. Something about the power of community, the strength 
the sustenance, the joy, and sometimes the sadness, which comes from compassion, from feeling with others what they know is their lot in life and bringing it to a higher plane of consciousness. Nina and I have really been enjoying our time with you, and we are sad that we are having to leave, but we go with assurance that your new minister, who has been announced as Alice King, a distant, distant, distant cousin, who is not from where I'm from, Georgia, but rather from North Carolina, which is, you know, I know a foreign country for Virginians, but um, that she will respond to who you are with the best of herself, and she will try to bring that light that she has in herself. She is a recent graduate of uh, seminary at the Chicago Meadville Seminary, but she has been a Unitarian Universalist, a dedicated professional in religious education for many years before going into seminary. And so I know she brings a lot of depth and a lot of understanding, and I know she will be so thrilled to be working with you and sharing with you the time that you have together. I hope it is long, and I hope, as uh, Spock would say, you live long and prosper together. But um, we have a closing song, and then we'll have our closing uh, extinguishing of the chalice. The song we have chosen is This Little Light of Mine. It seems to be appropriate to the topic. And Nina has some gifts for those of you who would care to take one. Your own little mirror that you may choose to carry with you throughout your journeys in, in this life as a reminder of our presence with you, but also a reminder of your presence and the importance of your engagement with the world. Please stand as you're willing and able for this little light of mine, number 118 in the gray hymnal.